Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to this weekend. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify and leave us a review. Coming up, with films such as 1917 louder than any ever before, a cinema's now just too noisy to enjoy. You're going to have to jump! Just jump! I can't! I can't see! You need to trust me! Jump! Plus, we visit a movie that has taken 29 years to develop. Don Quixote de la Mancha. Come to restore the lost age of chivalry. And there's a comeback from this iconic British duo. But first, are films getting too loud? Last week's 1917 was deafening. You're going to have to jump! Just jump! I can't... And many of Marvel's films are mixed so aggressively, it sounds like you're personally under attack. I waited my entire life for this. The world's going to start over. And to make matters even more uncomfortable, now some cinema chains don't just sell popcorn and hot dogs to be consumed during the movie, but food like pie and chips. <laughs> Joining me in the studio to share their cinema experiences are The Daily Mail's film critic, Brian Viner, and entertainment expert, Claudia Connell. Brian, are we just getting old grumpy old men about <laughs> this? Or, or, or has noise uh, gone up in the cinema over the years? Oh, definitely gone up, yeah, yeah. Well, you mean the noise on screen is... Both, is, noise uh, on I mean, screen. That is, oh, I mean, I saw... Uh, what was it, the, the Godzilla film, the last Godzilla film I saw? I mean, obviously, you know, it's not going to be a quiet film because there's an awful lot of monsters stamping around and raising cities to the ground and all that stuff. But the noise was, I mean, it was like an assault on your eardrums. It really? was absolutely incredible, yeah. Did you see it as a kind of particularly special cinema or is no. this happening at... At your local fleet? No, I think this is happening at your local fleet. And, the, and of course, the problem is, very often, you know, people see these films in multiplexes, and so there's another little cinema next door. So if you're going to see a quiet film, uh, a thoughtful film, you know, the, like like the thing recently with uh, Liam Neeson and uh, Leslie Manville, you know, about her suffering from cancer, and it was all very incredibly kind of poignant and quiet. And meanwhile, there's Godzilla next door, you know, <laughs> rampaging through the, <laughs> through Co San Francisco, coming through the walls, yeah, almost, and it's almost uh, literally. So it, it, it is a problem, really. It is a problem. Uh, you've been a, f a critic for, what, uh, ten years? Have Quite you? a few years, yeah. It, has it got louder? Have you noticed yeah, that? I, I think it definitely has, yeah. yeah. So why yeah. is that? What's that about? Well, because it's just they want films to get more and more immersive, you know, and so you can you can see films in 4D now, you know, they'll be 5D eventually, whatever that is. And, uh, in fact, Claudia was telling me she's better equipped to tell you about this than me because she, she had I the option the other day of being rained upon. I accidentally went to a 4D screening of... Um, what is 4D? It, I, I kind it, of understand 3D, but it, what's It's 4D? a marketing term, but it's where... Um, it, it's basically like seeing a film at Alton Towers. So you sit in your seat and um, the seats move and they shake and you 
you get aromas that are pumped into the cinema and smoke. And I, I, I realised I'd booked into the wrong cinema. I'm looking down at my seat and it says that you can you can turn the water on or off. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get... Well, it was 1917. Which oh, I really, wow. I did, you, did you get a rat scurrying I, across well, your face? One time it got to the smoke, I thought, no, I'm out of here. So I, I lasted for about 10 minutes and then I, I asked for a refund, which they, they did give me. There used the to be scratch and sniff movies, didn't they? There? Did. Yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. the first... Was it Hairspray or something like that? John Thingamy Waters uh, yeah, did a yeah. scratch and sniff movie. Yeah. You got a little card and a... a Certain moments you had to scratch it and sniff and the have card. a little sniff. Yeah, yeah, that, that's rather charming, isn't it? I quite like that idea. It's being, yeah, yeah being the, I love the idea on. of being rained on, though. When you go into a cinema, you know, out of the pouring rain, and then you've got an option of being singing in the rain yeah. with uh, yeah. with full effects. Exactly. And Claudia, I went to see Joker recently at my local yeah. multiplex, and Joker has very quiet bits. Yeah. But those were soundtracked by the scrunch and crumple of sweets which had been sold in the blooming foyer yeah. beforehand as if to irritate me. Yeah, I mean, and, and the slurping drinks. So, I mean, don't forget that the drinks that you buy now are like the size of a bucket. So it's, and, and also, I mean, popcorn is annoying, but it's becoming like the least, the least annoying food now. I, I went to the cinema at the weekend and I went to one of the big flagship cinemas in Leicester Square in London and I saw Bombshell. And I was just horrified to see they're selling pie and chips to eat during the film. And people were in the cinema eating pie so, and chips. So you're getting wafts. This yeah. is smell-o-vision and all yes. around you. I mean, it used to be that you'd, you'd go out for dinner before the cinema or after the cinema, but now you have your dinner in the middle of the cinema. You get pizza, hot dogs, nachos. Why so are they doing this, Brian? Why so are they doing this? Because What's the purpose? I'll tell you what, exactly why I think. They're trying to replicate, because because of, you know, you can now watch Netflix and you've got all these and you've got huge TV screens so you can sit at home and, and almost replicate the old-fashioned cinema experience at home. So what they are now doing in cinemas is trying to replicate the home experience where you can have something to eat and you can do all these things at home so they're, they're trying to make it more like home I think you know I would draw the line at pie and chips I mean if that if you know somebody next to me was yeah. sucking to pie yeah, oh, it's so really, antisocial it is it's really, it's really yeah. off-putting and I think but it's not your living room it's a cinema and there's 200 other people there it's you know but, yeah. but let me just say are we being a little po-faced here I uh been to the cinema in uh, overseas, in America, for instance, and in in South America. You go go to the movies in Brazil or something, and it is a full-on experience. People are shouting at the screen. They're getting very excited. <laughs> in Britain, we seem to think we've all got to be on our best behaviour, but maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should get more involved with no. things. <laughs> I, oh, I, I, I shush people all the time. Oh, do you? Yes, I, only if they look like they're not going to beat me up. But yes, I do. I will. <laughs> a selective have, shusher. Yes. <laughs> yeah. do you, are you are you a tap? on the shoulder I'm a, I'm a, I am I have to oh, confess well if somebody is looking at their iPhone and that is another real oh, problem yeah, the, I light. Think. Yeah. the light the yeah. light well more I, than mm. the, the phone ringing it's the I don't, it's I don't the actually the I mean on. I don't like that either but actually what gets me more than the and the phone ringing is the is the light that you get that's mm. really yes. really off-putting and I I'm afraid have been known to tap? tap you know quite politely yeah. but could you just uh, and what was the response away? Brian did you get a pie um, in it was the a face sort of sli- I, d- I didn't luckily no um, it wasn't a pie and chip cinema I don't think but um, it was a sort of slightly grudging hmm, harumph and they put it away but you know the fact that you've got to do that is outrageous especially if you think now at the beginning of 
every single film, wherever you are, there's the advert, isn't it? Yeah. Put your phone away, turn it off. But obviously people just ignore it. Uh, do you think there's going to be a kind of backlash? Do you think we're, you were talking about these magnificent new cinemas with kind of big oh, uh, sofa seats and, and a table yes, in yeah. front of you and so on. Do you think there's going to be a backlash against that and you'll go, be able to go to the cinema where there's no refreshments available and you have to hand your phone in before you go well, in? You have, you Could there be a market for that? Or is it just carriages you carriages on trains. Maybe have quiet cinemas with, you know, with <laughs> cinema-friendly food. Like I, I'm, I'm very considerate. I have wine gums in the cinema and I think they're a nice, quiet snack. Actually, if they if they serve fruit in foyers, that would be a, like a, you know, you could kill two birds with one stone. You could address the obesity problem, you know, get rid of all the pick and mix, just have plums and bananas and then maybe not apples, but then, you know, then it'd be nice and quiet. Where's but, your favourite cinema to go then, Brian? Where, where would you recommend listeners well, to go? The, I mean, the, the cinema that used to be my least favourite was the Odeon Leicester Square, which is the enormous place in the in the uh, in the centre of London. Uh, it was incredibly uncomfortable. I always thought it's huge, but it was incredibly. It was where all the premieres were. I've sat through many of those, and you kind of you were squirming in your seat, and you couldn't wait to leave. But they refurbished it at enormous cost, and now the seats in there are like airline first class airline seats, where you can, you know, at a push of a button you can buzz back and you can lie all not quite flat but not far off and you've got the old leg rest that comes out and the problem with that is and actually it might be you know the whole thing of being rained upon in a cinema might be quite useful to keep you awake <laughs> because you can't you go and see something like the irishman which i did there it's three and a half hours it's you know and i as a, i have a duty as a as a, to the readers and listeners of the mail to to stay awake during a film but it's quite hard i have to tell you claudia you spent most of your time looking at tv screen yes. but when you go out where do you like to go to i try and uh, go to little independent cinemas i do like those although i think they're more likely to have an issue with the soundproofing i had that experience in one of the picture house cinemas um boxing day when i saw little women and uh, star wars playing next door so poor old beth is dying and then there's some sort of intergalactic <laughs> battle coming through from next door but i, I prefer smaller cinemas um and I, I grew up on the south coast so i don't know if you heard of the the dome cinema in worthing that featured really no. heavily in Wish You Were Here film. It's a really lovely retro cinema that they've uh, recently sort of refurbished. And My, my favourite, for what it's worth, is the uh, penultimate picture palace in Oxford. I don't know if you've ever been. It's a lovely uh, old-school uh, cinema, yeah. and you go in, and the, yes, there is a bar at the back, but but no pie and chips, no. so we're, we're safe with that. Well, of course, that's the other thing, being there being a bar. You know, if you have a have a hefty gin and tonic, and then and then you're sitting in an incredibly comfortable and seat. And press your button, yeah. and, and you're gone. Quite warm yeah. in there, then you're absolutely wiped out. You're gone. So uh, you know, it's, it's sort of slightly a bit of a problem that. But, so that um, is yeah. why you gave cats five stars. <laughs> no, no, I loved it. <laughs> Brian and Claudia, thank you very much. Now he's the man of a thousand voices with the most uncanny impressions of Boris Johnson. I will speak with a bluster at a great rate of knots and uh, with humour put in for the suitable distractions and uh, hopefully leave uh, a little time for you to answer proper questions. And Donald Trump. Spicer. Sean, it's Donald. <laughs> I need your help. It's an urgent matter, big matter. The bigliest. <laughs> 
I have the bigliest matters. <laughs> I was just watching television, and they're saying Theresa May has struck a deal with some dinosaurs. Uh, 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 yes, sir. Uh, essentially, what that means is that uh, DUP's policies... John, are... I want to work with dinosaurs, too. <laughs> and today, I'm going to make impressionist John Colshaw of Dead Ringers do as many of them as I can in the space of ten minutes. Dead Ringers. Uh, John, so nice to speak to you. And now, I, I came along to see Dead Ringers live at the Barbican. It was an absolute privilege, although I'm not sure I can say sharing the room with Donald Trump and Boris Johnson is that much of a privilege. <laughs> um, what's it like for you being those people? It's a, it's a very interesting few moments. It's a, a fascinating insight into, my goodness me, how do these people think? How can you think when you are surrounded by that kind of machine of uh, all the goings-on? It, it must be very otherworldly and unrealistic, and I think that's what leads to some of the, some of the most absurd goings-on, which, um, you know, for, for comedy, it's, it's a great service. It is a great time to be an observer, isn't it, uh, of, of things? Dead Ringers must write itself, doesn't it? It does, rather. It, there's certainly never any doubt as to where you should look. And I think the appetite for news over the last five years or so, with the rise of social media, where everybody has such an appetite for what's going on and they want to give their own opinion in this forthright way. Social media has taught everyone that we have to have an opinion about everything at all times, and it has to be issued in a very uh, assured manner. That's sort of driven the whole sense of um, an appetite for news and current affairs and, and culturally. Um, it's just made everything fizz. The, the snowstorm ornament has had a real shake over the last five years, and all the pieces are flying around together with not just a massive appetite, but also some of the most profound goings-on for many, many years indeed. Watching you in action, it's incredible. Anyone would be astonished by the range of impressions you've got. I believe you do 350, is that right? Something like that it might be. If you, if you were to count up every character you ever did, from Wurzel Gummidge to my Uncle Jack to Keir Starmer or whoever it might be, if you were to count up in every which way, in every direction, you might end up with something like that. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's quite possible. And you mentioned Keir Starmer there. Presumably you've got to keep updating your portfolio, haven't you? Yes, quite. Impressions and topical comedy. Topical comedy that uses impressions as its method of communication, as Dead Ringers does. You do always have to keep like a game of chess, looking, you know, two, three moves ahead. And certainly Keir Starmer is a character, as we would say, presently in the workshop. So um, it's a time when you download all the YouTube clips you can find. Some of them are very good clips that really help you to research. If it's an interview where they're speaking for a prolonged amount of time, and it's a time to just watch and watch and watch and just let it flow into your subconscious so you can see and hear that person in your mind and reproduce it as such. There must be some who are easier than others, some who, who match the timbre of your voice. Who, who did you get absolutely instantly? You know, Tony Blair was a very instant one in that way. George W., he was another one. <laughs> 
He was quite similar to George Bush Sr. George <laughs> Bush Sr. had that kind of pace and speed it up and compress it, and it takes you to George W. I think uh, I think the Donald is uh, very much you know another one that uh, you get fairly quickly, very quickly. You would not believe. I think we can rattle this up very quickly. <laughs> you would not believe how how soon we can do a deal here. Um, the great petulant toddler who is the Donald. The, um, the first question that doctors invariably get asked in social situation is about the questioner's rash. So presumably the first question <laughs> you get asked is, can you, can, can you do me your Tom Baker? Oh, yes, sometimes, yes. People often ask for, uh, ask for Tom. I was working with him the other day, actually. Yes, uh, we were doing, uh, we were working for Big Finish Productions, um, doing one of the Doctor Who audios, the audio adventures. Uh, it's wonderful <laughs> that Tom Baker still does Doctor Who. He still Isn't plays the Doctor through Big Finish Productions and Louise Jameson playing his um, his companion, Leela. And it's just glorious to work with him. And um, at the end of these recordings, he's 86 today, Tom Baker. It's his birthday today. Um, and it's just so wonderful to... And after one of these recordings, he says, oh... I don't deserve such joy. <laughs> what have I done to deserve such joy? That in his 86th year, 87th year, he's, he's still loving playing the Doctor and everyone. It's, you know, our privilege to be with him. You love a bit of astronomy, don't you? And, you, and you've done uh, p- programmes on it. When you look at the stars, can you do it without yes. getting Patrick Moore's voice in your head? Not sure. <laughs> I don't think it would be as much fun <laughs> without uh, without Patrick Moore's voice in my head. I've always had um, a, a great fascination and and the love of astronomy and the night sky. Uh, as Carl Sagan said, it's a very humbling and character building experience. And it, I think I think it is very healthy. It's good for the soul to look and contemplate a little bit beyond, even though um, that the distance involved are far greater than what we can naturally comprehend as human beings. Massive distances, massive spans of unthinkable time, enormous values, but nevertheless, we just have to accept them. And I think it is good for the soul to think in this beyond way and to try to consider what we fit into the wider universe that stretches to beyond infinity. It takes you beyond, you know, beyond, you know, the most recent daft thing that Boris or Donald has said, and um, and you know beyond the uh, the items that we we hear in our daily news. So I've, I always do love that. But yes, I think Patrick Moore has a a, a, a tone of voice which very much chimes with uh, with astronomy and the night sky. And one always does think of him uh, when observing observing Mars or Saturn. <laughs> when, when are we going to be able to see you live again, uh, John? When, when, when are you back on stage and when are you on the radio? We have a Dead Ringers tour once again. We're going to be back at the Barbican, but we're doing a national tour as well uh, for about five or six weeks, uh, which starts April, I believe. And um, I'm also doing another run of my own show, The Great British Takeoff, which just always keeps changing and refreshing it's a, it refreshing itself it's a very loose non-rehearsed 
spontaneous, improvised format. There's a bit of a structure to it. It's got an anecdotal structure at times. But that just keeps on changing and refreshing with new tales, new characters, depending on when we're doing it. I always love to run with that one too. And has there ever been an occasion when you've been standing on stage, looked out into the audience, about to launch into an impression and seen the person you're about to do the impression of? We do get that at times. In the final Dead Ringers live show at our Edinburgh run this year, John Burko was in the audience. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, oh, that must have been a, a fantastic. That was a, a that's an open goal for John Culture, I would imagine. <laughs> Well, you know, we we all we, we all have a a, a Burko um, in, in the show. Uh, Lewis McLeod uh, was doing him, and uh, he certainly relished to get behind the mic and uh, do the pre-show announcements. Order, order, <laughs> and just uh, I think uh, I think John Burko's um, ambition is to be you know to to play the pantomime game. I think there's a real love of show business going on there, and uh, he loves the fact that uh, he turned order. <laughs> almost into his exclusive catchphrase. A few years ago, I did a show called Alter Ego, where I would interview people opposite them as them. Oh, really? And depending on how, you know, depending on the, the, the person involved, they either loved it or were slightly spooked. Um, <laughs> Come on, name names, John Culture. Who was spooked? <laughs> I worked with Ozzy Osbourne in this way on a number of occasions too. He, I, I don't know whether he was spooked or just thought, like you know, his mirror's reflection had come to life, you know, that kind of that, that kind of thing. I once um, I once asked Frank Skinner if he'd want to do it, and he, he sort of said, "No, I think that'd frighten me. No, I think it'd, <laughs> I'd be a bit, uh, I'd, be, I'd be a bit frightened if I did that. You know, I'd be a bit frightened." Uh, <laughs> but, oh, um, John, John Coltrane! Most, most people do love it. It's been an absolute pleasure. To talking to you and about 45 other people on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore the hype and tell us what they really think about this week's new releases. First up, the Daily Mail's film critic, Mr Brian Viner. Brian, what have you been watching and did you need earplugs? <laughs> uh, no, actually. I, I saw The Personal History of David Copperfield, which is Armando Yanucci's take on the on the great Charles Dickens novel and it's 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 very charming it's very quirky Dev Patel plays Copperfield and that is typical of that bit of casting for the film because he has Yanucci has made it very sort of multi racial multi ethnic so there's sort of multicolored indeed so which I think is intended to replicate what London looks like today, not necessarily what it looked like in but, Victorian But has he time. updated the story or yeah. has he updated the background? Not really, no, no. I mean, he, he stays fairly faithful to the novel, so it's kind of episodic. I don't know how many people will, will be familiar with the novel, but it's, it's quite episodic and it follows the, uh, the life of, of, this, of this young boy who's, who's sent off by his very kind of wicked stepfather to a, to a bottling factory in London, and that is very close to Dickens's own experiences. So it was, I think, Dickens's most autobiographical novel. And so we go from episode to episode, and it includes some glorious, some of Dickens's best characters. Mr. Micawber, who's played by Peter Capaldi, uh, Uriah Heep, the horrible, obsequious character who turns out to be an absolute rotter, who's played brilliantly by Ben Whishaw, 
Tilda Swinton is in it. She plays his David's aunt, Betsy Trotwood. You know, everywhere you look, and the Hugh Laurie plays Mr. Dick, who's this kind this of slightly hapless. Oh, it's, it? it's a fantastic cast. In a way, it's slightly, possibly slight, a bit of a distraction because everywhere you look, there's a famous face popping up, and you and you're sort of identifying the face rather than maybe involving yourself in the, in the movie. But it's it's very it's also sort of slightly Python-esque in places. Hello, can you wake up? <coughs> What are you doing? Medicine. Reviving you. This is salad dressing. Is it? <clears throat> I thought it was Armagnac. Don't have my spectacles on. Do you have a lettuce somewhere covered in ointment? Um... His head is entirely removed from his body, we're sure. Let's leave Charles's head on one side for the moment, Mr. Dick. Pick it up later. Understood. How do you do? Now, Mr. Dick, don't be a fool, because no-one can be more discerning than you when you choose. David Copperfield, my brother, you've heard me speak of him, Yes, just then. Oh, uh, you mean before that? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I remember. Oh, I'm hungry. Cakes, um, cakes. Oh, Mr. Dick, my brother, David Copperfield, this is his son who's run away. What should we do with him? One thing he could do is... If I were you, I'd wash him. It's a very playful film. I didn't love it as much as some of my fellow critics. It seemed to me to drag slightly in places... You know, it's sometimes you, you watch Dickens and you think and you couldn't realise and understand why he wrote his stories, you know, as newspaper episodes. And so he, you know, in in different chapters. And um, this film could almost have done with a sort of TV manifestation. So, you know, you watched it in sort of six or eight episodes. Let's hear one of those episodes now. Are we expecting visitors? Hide it. Hide, hide the spoon! Uh. What's happening? Bailiffs. We're undone. The sun goes down upon us. The debtor's prison awaits. Cut. They cut. That is not your chicken. Oh. You're stealing an honest man's chicken. That, that yeah. sounds familiar, Dickens, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's... Uh, yeah, so the, Mr McCorber, who's got the debt... De collectors banging at his door trying to at one point there's a very there's a funny moment where they actually start pulling a rug from sort of through the window pulling one of mr mccorber's rugs and there's a child sitting on it so the child is kind of edging towards the window really he he pull he digs out the comedy from dickens you know dickens uh, you know, some people find it terribly wordy and it's hard sometimes to find the comedy, um, except in the names, which is so, you know, he, he uses these misters, Mr. Dick, and there's, you know, Betsy Trotwood and all this. Betsy things. Trotwood, a famous yeah. pub in London, isn't there? Oh, is that there's right, Jim? I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if Dickens would have used this particular terminology, but uh, hit or miss, Brian? I mean, with, with certain caveats, it's definitely a hit. And uh, what else is uh, good this week? Well, I saw The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, uh, which is Terry Gilliam's new film. Now, this has just, been around uh, a long time. Well, this is a really interesting story because just, we'll come to the film in a moment. But the, the story of the film, of the making of the film, is extraordinary because Gilliam has been trying to get this thing made since 1989. Uh, I don't think there has, in the history of the movies, has ever been a... So that's uh, over 30 years over 30, trying was, to get this was, film off the ground. He wasn't 50. He wasn't quite 50 when he started making it, and he's now in his 80s. The film has outlived two of the oh, people. Seriously? I mean, yeah, John Hurt was, was supposed to be in it at one point. He sadly died. There was a documentary made about his failure to get this thing done, and that was 20 years ago. So, you know, <laughs> and so here we are 20 years later. And, 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 and 30 years on, was it worth the wait? 
30 years on, it's, it is a, another quirky film, as we would expect from Gilliam, who is, as we know, the great Pythons. It is the story of an advertising director, commercials director, played by Adam Driver, played very extremely well by Adam Driver. That Who he probably wasn't born when this started. Well, he was certainly in short travel. I mean, he was in nursery school when the whole thing, yeah, he's in his early 30s. So, And he goes to Spain and he's shooting a commercial and it's based on the story of Don Quixote. And he is reminded by somebody gives him a DVD of an old film he made as a student which was about, which was the Don Quixote story, in which he cast a shoemaker, an old shoemaker who was just a, just a villager, to play Don Quixote, and he thinks, oh, wouldn't it be great to go back and find this old boy, which he does, played by Jonathan Price, again very beautifully, um, but it turns out that the old guy who was just a shoemaker has now become convinced he's gone mad basically, and he's become convinced that he is Don Quixote, and we should maybe listen to a clip. Don Quixote de la Mancha. Come to restore the lost age of chivalry. Well, I wrote that. Blasphemer, the hand of our God in heaven. Can I read? <laughs> the peasant like you cannot read. I will sound the words, and you can look at the pictures. Now he actually believes he's done killed. This is going to be fun. Sounds though like the entire cast has been on <laughs> holiday in Malaga with those accents. I know. No, it's um, it's it's a crazy film, and a bit of it that I didn't explain was that Adam Driver becomes the sort of Sancho Panza to Price's Don Quixote, and Gilliam does what he's done in so many of his films, in The Fisher King and various others, and Time Bandits, and he sort of blurs reality with fantasy in a very kind of beguiling way. It's a muddled film. The coherence of it is not exactly what you might like. It goes on a bit, but it has some glorious moments. Price is fabulous as this mad, adult old guy. And, you know, there's lots of good reasons to see it. So, so hit or miss? Uh, well, I think, again, you know, with, with certain constraints, I would pronounce it a hit. Brian, thank you very much indeed. Now I'm joined by Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic. Uh, what have you been listening to, Adrian, this week? Well, this week, I think it's the first really big week of the year in terms of new releases. We're finally getting the kind of the big, meaty albums, um, one of which is the new album, the 14th album, by the Pet Shop Boys. Whoa, it's, put the bunting out. I'm yeah, excited about this. So it's uh, called Hot Spot, and it was written and recorded in the famous Hansa Studios in Berlin, where, where Bowie wrote and recorded his heroes and work with Iggy Pop. Hopefully the Pep Shop Boys had a slightly healthier diet than uh, those two <laughs> did back in the day. But um, yeah, you 2 recorded um, Akatung Baby there. So it's a very iconic, famous old studio. And Pet Shop Boys, you could even say their music's quite uh, Euro-influenced. It always has been. They've had those, those kind of synthy disco beats. And this is an album of, of classic Pet Shop Boys material. It's um, upbeat synth pop with those uh, never too far from a raised eyebrow with the Pet Shop Boys. There's some quite droll arch lyrics, but very kind of pithy, intelligent band and uh, Neil Tennant and, and Chris Lowe, they're real masters of their game and I think over the last couple of years, you know, the last couple of decades even, they've they've taken that sound, which a lot of people thought was a very singles-based, studio-based thing, out into the live arena and they put on these fabulous kind of musical art pop theatre shows that um, that really kind of raised the bar in terms of taking electronic music out on tour. 
it's, it's an interesting record because, I mean, Neil and Chris both in their 60s now and it's not all just lyrically, it's not all just party party tunes. They're kind of aware of the of the kind of passing of passing of the years and there's a, they're kind of slightly wry in their, their take on hedonism. There's a song called Will of the Wisp, which is a, a kind of very um, kind of droll take on an ageing partygoer, the oldest swinger in town. Let's, um, let's hear a clip from uh, this new album. Boys, quite clearly, Neil Tennant's uh, vocals are so familiar and that electro bop background. Uh, have you seen any development over the years in their music? Yeah, funny enough, that song, Monkey Business, the one they describe as their groove song. I mean, to my to my ears, most of the album is, is groove songs, and they they really do have a very distinctive signature sound. But there are they they have um they have changed a bit over the years, and I think there's a couple of tracks, particularly on this album, there's one called Burning the Heather that's an acoustic guitar track, still with a little bit of a, an electronic back drop, um, a song where they, they kind of almost address their mortality. It's a song about the ageing process. Um, there's, I mean, it's it's pretty much business as usual with, with very high-quality songs. Um, there's a nice track called Only the Dark. Uh, the lyrics go, Feels so good to be just the two of us anyone else around would be superfluous they are i think they're britain's most successful ever pop duo you know, they've had something like four number ones countless top 20 hits i mean there's a few already from this record and you know what, what they do they just do so well and this this is a band still three or four decades into their career still at the top of their game uh, bearing in mind that i would be showing you in the direction of the door if you said um it was a miss a hit or miss for you it's Adrian. definitely a hit this one and, and what else have you been listening to? Well, the other really interesting album out this week is the, the third album by an American singer called Halsey, H-A-L-S-E-Y. Um, she is um, she's a 25-year-old singer-songwriter from New Jersey who emerged about five, six years ago. I actually saw her first ever UK gig. She played at the Islington Academy in 2015, and it was it was apparent even then that she had a huge female, young female fan base that she'd basically generated by posting songs online. But there was something about her music that made me see that she could appeal to kind of maybe slightly older rock fans as well. She really kind of has one foot in both camps. And I think this album is is the epitome of, of what she does, really. It's um, it's very personal in the lyrics. She's had, you know, she's had personal problems. She, she's very frank, very... It's a very autobiographical record. She's very forward in terms of what, what she's been through, breakups, breakdowns. and uh, But she she's married it to some really good, strong pop songs this time around. Let's hear some Halsey. Beautiful stranger, here you are In my arms and I know Beautiful strangers only come along to do me wrong And I hope, beautiful stranger, here you are in my arms But I think it's finally, 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 finally safe for me to fall 
beautiful stranger uh, there from Halsey, Adrian. She's dancing around her living room in that uh, track. Uh, she had you dancing around yours. She, you know, she's got some very sad songs on the record. That's a very up. Well, it's a it's a reflective ballad, but it's a love song. It's you know she kind of really runs the the waterfronts in terms of emotions. I like and her voice, uh, actually. Very strong voice, really interesting voice, and it's a very crowded market that she's in. You know, these kind of young female singers, particularly from across the pond. There's so many at the moment, and I think there's something a bit different about Halsey. I think she she really sticks out, and I think she's got a really, you know, I think this record's going to really break her over here. She's had some success, but I think this one is really going to push her to the next level. Thumbs up, then. Thumbs up, absolutely. A hit. Thank you so much, Adrian. And now on Hits and Misses, I'm joined by the Daily Mail's TV critic, Claudia Connell. Hello, Claudia. What should we be watching this week? Well, on Monday, there's a a one-off drama called The Windermere Children that's on BBC Two. The BBC have got a a whole load of programmes to mark the 75th anniversary since the end of the Holocaust. And this is a a 90-minute drama, and it's a true story. It's about a group of refugees that survived the concentration camps that were brought to the UK to be rehabilitated. They're mostly teenagers, but some of them were as young as three years old, and they they stayed at Windermere for, for four months, and they... They were given medical care and therapy just to try and let them help them readjust back into society. Let's hear a clip from that. It's half time. One all. Have to hand it to you. Your lads have been brutal but effective. Haven't they just? You're doing very well, lads. Very well indeed. Individually, you two are a pair of footballing clowns, but when you work together, you're bloody lethal. Keep it up. Same goes for the rest of you. Keep those tackles going in. Uh, might I interject? Of course. It's a wonderful performance, boys. <laughs> that said, this team that you've been playing so effectively, they're the children of all those good people. And without them, your stay in Windermere would have been impossible. So perhaps, and uh, this is merely a suggestion, uh, Mr Lawrence is your coach, of course, not I, but perhaps... You might consider not breaking anyone's legs in the second half. In the spirit of friendship. That was them playing football uh, around Windermere. I once interviewed a guy called Ben Hefglott, who was one of the people who went to Windermere, and he went on to represent Great Britain in the Olympics as a weightlifter. So they were obviously athletic kids. Yeah, well, he's quite a major character in this. Yes, he's um, Ian Glenn, who pays the uh, PT instructor spots that he has a real sort of gift as a natural athlete, and he's he's a, a key figure in the football match. They'd actually decide to throw the football match, even though they could easily win it because just to get in with the locals because they don't get the warmest of reception from the locals. Oh, didn't they? It was a mixed reception. I think a, a lot of people just thought, I mean, obviously, that you know, the UK was on its knees after the end of the Second World War and they thought the money should be spent on, on helping British children. And does it work as a drama? I mean, it's a true story, as you it's say, a and, a, and a compelling true story. Is yes. it a compelling drama? It, it is. I, I felt that it could have benefited from being two parts, actually. It's only 90 minutes and there's an awful lot to get 
in. The children had, for the time, actually quite forward-thinking therapy, things like art therapy, and they had really quite haunting stories of things that the traumas they'd suffered in the camp. Most of them were orphans, and it felt like it sort of touched a little bit on each child, but it, it could have done with going a little bit deeper, I thought. And it's called the Windermere Children. It's called the Windermere Children. But it was shot in on... Northern Ireland. Well, couldn't they use Lake Windermere? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know them. it was shot in Northern Ireland, actually. You wouldn't know. It does look like Windermere. So, a great story, but hit it's or miss? Great, oh, no, it's still a hit. It's it's important. It may be a little bit superficial in places, but actually the, the young actors, the European actors that pay the kids are, are really brilliant. A week of historical, British historical fiction. What else have you been watching? Well, on Sunday, it's the final part of the trial of Christine Keeler on BBC One. And um, I think it's just been a really good series. I've liked this because we've seen so many times recently that series start off brilliantly and they just peter out. And and this has almost been the opposite. It it had a sort of a, a reasonable start and it's got better and better. And the, the final episode is, is really good. So it's, what's good about it? I mean, we know the story. Yeah, we, well, we know all the characters. That's what I've liked about way. this because it, it's such a familiar story. So it is a real challenge to tell it in a new way that's going to capture the audience's imagination and and what um, the writer Amanda Coe has done here is that she's made Christine Keeler a really sympathetic figure. I think in the past she's always been this sort of temptress and here you see what a damaged individual she was and how she, she looked for sort of love in the wrong places. Older men that she she thought would protect her ended up taking advantage of her. And in this final episode, actually, Neil Morrissey from Men Behaving Badly appears as her father, who comes back on the scene having abandoned her when she was a child. And, you know, very naively, she thinks that he's there for her and he's there to help her. And of course he's not. He's there to sell stories about her. So you do end up feeling very sorry for her. Sounds very familiar, um, rather familiar to what's going on at the moment in um, the Megan story, oh, I isn't suppose, it? Yes, I suppose you could say that with the the dad um, cashing in on the letters. Have they have they got those modern day parallels? Have they, or is it very much a historical no, it's, it, based it's sort of, piece? You know, it's, it's it's left to your sort of interpretation. No, it's it's pretty historically accurate, I would say. Uh, let's hear a clip of her in in the midst of the drama. Like any girl my age, I'd always dreamt of meeting Prince Charming. Then I met John Profumer. John was never Prince Charming. I knew that from the very beginning. That was uh, Christine remembering that John Profumo was not uh, Prince Charming. No, she never met her Prince Charming. It's brought forward some really interesting actors we haven't seen before, as Christine Keeler and yeah, and, and Sophie Cookson, Davis. Um, plays plays Christine Keeler, and, and she's she's really good. She looks the part. She's very beguiling, but also she, you know, Christine had a really vulnerable side, and that comes across really well as too. And James Norton as as Stephen Ward has been excellent as well. Poor old Stephen Ward. I mean, we've seen in The Crown, haven't we? They've t- they've touched on this because yes. they seem to have involved, um, I'm not quite sure, uh, with any historical accuracy in The Crown, the Duke of Edinburgh in this. There's always any been suggestion the, rumors, the Duke's involved yes, in this? I, I don't, um, no, actually, that's that's really not touched on at all in this series, no. It, it's very much the, the established players that, that we know about. So, hit or miss? Yeah, big hit. Well, now you know what's worth seeing and really what isn't worth getting out of bed for. My thanks to Brian, Adrian and Claudia. 
Let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic and who better to tell us than the male's own Jackie Stephen. Is it something to do with your diet that you, that's been obsessing you recently? Well, it's sort of obsessing me because all the celebrities now are talking about uh, their diet and uh, they've been doing Veganuary or Veganuary, however you pronounce it. I'm always trying to make it sound not like virgin or a female body part, but uh, <laughs> it's a veganism for January and it's when people are stopping drinking as well. But they've all been doing these plant-based diets. Have you, Jackie? Well, I've, I'm largely vegetarian anyway, but I've been trying the vegan diet for nearly two weeks now. it'll be two weeks tomorrow so I bought some vegan cheese that went from the supermarket into my mouth briefly and then into the bin so next time I'm just going to buy it in the supermarket and go straight to the bin and cut out the middleman it's terrible I tried vegan wine I've had nice herbarium meals it's absolutely disgusting for the first time ever at the SAG Awards the Screen Actors Guild Awards which took place on Sunday they joined the Critics Choice Awards and also the Golden Globes in having a totally vegan-based menu. And so what do they serve up? I mean, it contained things like shaved baby peppers, little gem lettuce, baby carrots. Why do vegetarians and vegans have to do everything as baby and small? To me, that's a red flag and something to say, you know, let's go out and just buy the biggest burger that we can. It's, it's like if you put the word little and baby in front of it, it gives it credibility. Some of the celebrities who've been up for awards this year, they're they actually are looking pretty good on it, aren't they? Well, Adele has lost uh, seven stones. Hang on. Sorry, Jackie. Hang on. Seven stones? Seriously? Yep. That's like, like one arm for her. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's been on uh, this incredible diet, actually. Well, they say it's incredible. They say all diets are incredible. It's the Certford diet, and it encourages plant foods like kale and buckwheat and lots of green juices uh, because they apparently contain something known as sirtuin activators, which suppress appetite and activate the body skinny gene but she's been on holiday with James Corden and Harry Styles and every picture you see of her on the beach she's got another cocktail in her hand so uh, that's my kind of diet to be honest and Adele interestingly now this year she's bringing out her first album in five years since the album 25 now why they take so long these musicians to bring stuff out I have no idea if I said to my editor is it alright if I have a five year hiatus between articles I know where I'd be told to go what are they doing in those five years? Well, drinking cocktails on a beach, obviously. I, I wonder if her vocal cords have been shrunk during this diet as well. Have you heard anything from her, even just talking recently? No, only about her diet, but vegetarian food is much better for the vocal cords anyway. I'm a trained singer, and uh, it's very good to have all the juices, natural juices from those things uh, to keep your vocal cords moist, moist. I don't know if they shrink. I'm a big fan of Adele, but I just wish she'd bring things out uh, more often. The biggest celebrity advocate of the vegan diet is Joaquin Phoenix, who's been vegan since he was three Three years old. Now, in his Golden Globe speech, he said, I'd like to thank the Hollywood Foreign Press for recognising and acknowledging the link between animal agriculture and climate change. Now, I'm a bit wary about him because he stars in this movie Joker, which has done about as much for the environment as Hannibal Lecter did for Lettuce. You know, it's a disgusting film, and I think it's immoral and just a horrible piece of work. And he's been vegan since the age of three, so that might actually explain his ridiculous choice in movie roles. Well, one of the things about his performance in Joker, he did look very, very thin. Uh, I thought he'd lost weight specifically, or is that his natural form now? 
No, he's quite chunky. A lot of them lose weight for roles. You look at Renee Zellweger. Uh, she became very, very thin for Judy. I have to tell you, by the way, Oh, my goodness. In the awards, she and Catherine Zeta-Jones, they've obviously been to the same surgeon. Neither of them could move their faces. And their eyes have now gone so slitty. I mean, they, they look as if their heads are swallowing their eyes whole. They look really, really odd. <laughs> and this is nothing to do with diet, you reckon? No, I think this is to do with scalpels. I'll tell you who was great, though, was Brad Pitt. He gave the funniest speech. Oh, and he's so handsome. He's so gorgeous. Let's be honest, it was a difficult part. A guy who gets high, takes his shirt off, and doesn't get on with his wife. <laughs> it's a big stretch. Quentin Tarantino, who just directed him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, allegedly, although he does, have a foot fetish, and there are two characters in it who show their feet again. I want to thank my co-stars, uh, Leo, Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie's feet, Margaret Qualley's feet, Dakota Fanning's feet. Seriously, Quentin has separated more women from their shoes than the TSA. The TSA are the people at American airports who get you to take your shoes off. So that was a very, very funny line. He was great. But I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit wary about these awards because you've got a load of actors celebrating other actors. And it's like a meeting of narcissists anonymous. It's a very, very bizarre atmosphere. And they have these little bits where the actors come on and they talk about how they got into acting. And they say, my name is such and such, and I am an actor. And you say, oh, shut up. <laughs> Jackie, I think you're in need of a burger. I'm going to let you go off and get, get the rarest <laughs> well, one on the menu. As Kermit the Frog once sang, it's not easy being green. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jackie. And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify and leave us a review. And if you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. Goodbye.